Science couldn't explain it, but there it was, alive, in the deep, deep waters of the Amazon. A throwback to a creature that had existed a hundred million years ago. Boils and ghouls, lock your doors and strap yourselves in. From Los Angeles, California, this is the Boo Crew Podcast. Horror news, commentary, reviews, interviews, and more. With your hosts, Tim Timebomb, Leone D'Antonio, Lauren and Trevor Shan, Austin Wilkin, and Rachel Tejada. Let's go! Yo, it's the Boo Crew Podcast, episode number 44. This week, our guest is Mallory O'Mara. She's an author, horror filmmaker, and co-host of the amazing Reading Glasses podcast. She's got a new book out called The Lady from the Black Lagoon, Hollywood Monsters, and the Lost Legacy of Millicent Patrick, the only woman in history to create one of Hollywood's classic monsters, a fact that had previously been covered up. Join us as we uncover this fascinating mystery together with Mallory. Follow the twists and turns take us to the Disney vaults, the far-off reaches of outer space, and even Hearst Castle. Right now we are... Uh, uh-oh. I guess some rain is in the forecast. Time to pay a visit to another body of water. This is Mallory O'Mara, and you are swimming around the Black Lagoon with the Boo Crew. The Boo Crew. The freshest cuts of new stuff. Here's Sweet Screams. Father, can you help us? The church works with people. Who specialize in situations like this? Get to La Llorona. Is she coming? She's already here. Of La Llorona, released April 19th, 2019, feature length directorial debut by Michael Shavs, who had the Shriekfest winning horror short The Maiden, which you should definitely check out. The Curse of La Llorona stars Marisol Ramirez, Linda Cardellini, Patricia Velasquez, Raymond Cruz, Roman Christou, Janie Lynn Kinchin. Made for about nine million bucks, taking the victory at the box office for Easter weekend with 56.6 million globally. In 1970s Los Angeles, a mother and her kids are stalked by the spirit of the child stealing, weeping woman known only as la 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 Yorona. <laughs> when Lauren and I were trying to find it, the yeah. security guard goes, I only know the name because it reminds with my Sharona the song. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's what he said. Security guy. I go, man, you are, you are sharp, dude. Yeah. <laughs> Thank God you're like looking out for us. Yeah, uh, that's right. He's got our back. Yeah, you got our back. Yeah. Safe. So what did everybody think? I really dug it. I thought it fit in that universe perfectly. I agree. Sixth installment, Country 1, 2, Annabelle 1, 2, The Nun, and this. Boom. I mean, they're all great. All those films are dope. Yeah, I agree. And this fit, it felt like if I didn't know it was a part of it and I just was dumped in the theater, I would think this is part of the Conjuring universe. Like, I don't know how they do it, but I'm very impressed at that style and structure and tone that you feel like you're in the Conjuring universe. Yeah, but not because it's just the 70s, but it just has that It has like texture. a thread. That tension building. They take their time with character development, their tension building, and then you get a scare. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, they do that very well. Yeah, I was scared a lot. I was jumping a lot. I was covering my eyes a little bit, and that's when you know I'm really scared. Like, <laughs> I, I know something's coming, but shit, is it going to come right now? Is it going to come right now? Can I handle this? Yeah, the audience that we saw it with was just like, screaming and talking to the screen like what are you yeah. doing oh yeah. my god don't do that at first yeah. it bothered me because I hate when people fucking talk during movies but for this I actually was into it when yeah. they talk at the screen to something else yeah right yeah it, it was super cool. engaging yeah it was really and fun it's interesting to find out James Wan is like on the set kind of keeps his eye on everything yeah which yeah. is cool that, that, could be, that makes sense we'd explain why it 
they all have that vibe. Right. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Know? That Yeah, that would make sense. You're right. The Invisible Hand of James Wan. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a cool movie. <laughs> I know they call James Wan like what? The master of the art of the scare, right? Yeah. yeah. I would say Michael Shavs would be the master of the fun of the art of the scare. Yeah. I like yeah. that. Yeah, you know? totally. Yeah, totally. Because it was really fun. It had that element, that darkness, that foreboding tension that those great Wan movies have, but it had this element of fun of like an evil dead, right? He does comedy really well. Like you were saying, Leo, it's very character driven. And all the jump scares were very character driven. They weren't turn on a light and a scare. You're experiencing this through the the eyes of the characters. There's a sequence, which I think is in the trailer with the the kid in the car. That whole sequence. It's so good. That was a nail biter right there. And pays off beautifully. His camera placement and like just his pacing and like knowing like how long to hold out that tension. You can just feel it. Even from the beginning, you just feel like the tension's building. Like something's going to happen. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. I like the look of 1970s LA because, you know, it's like I have memories of that. I mean, I was a kid, you know, later 70s, 80s, you know, but it's just like it's a gritty look. And it's just yeah. like, yeah, I mean, when I first heard of this legend, it's like I was that old and it was creepy back then. It's still creepy today, but it's like. I love that look in the movie. And of course, there's a plot point, and we're not going to reveal why, but it is set in the 70s for a specific reason. Scarlett somehow found the trailer. I don't know why she's seen the trailer, and I don't <laughs> I know. know what the hell she's I know why. Think what? about it for a second. Let's think about it. Oh, okay. Mm. I just figured She's watching Billie Eilish, Eilish videos and then yeah. what pops up? <laughs> right, right, right. Okay. Right, directed by, very friend, right, directed by Michael Schell. Yeah, exactly. So she found it and she's like I, I keep seeing this scary movie and it's this lady in the bathtub and like she pieced together because Everett's like what are you talking about what do you because he always has to know what she's talking about and she pieced together that she's like there's a lady and she kills children <laughs> and so yes, scariest yeah. thing in the world yeah. for a kid he was like what <laughs> And he's like freaking out and he's like, no, that's not real. And she's like, no, it is. And then he's like, no, it's not. And she goes, well, I guess you're still here because she knew like it was like bad kids. She was like, yeah, she kills bad kids that don't listen. And she drowns them and she drowned her own kids. Oh, my gosh. And then Everett was so scared. And she's like, I know that it's not real because you're still here. (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking. Because I was thinking of using that legend and helping us out with it. Yeah, it went for me. That's right, the amazing see? thing. Now it's translating. Uh, it's going. It's coming out of the Latino uh, community. Yeah, we'll just call it the Mirror Witch. Right. Ooh, <laughs> yes, the Mirror Witch. I was looking up some facts about La Llorona, and there's sightings of La Llorona frequently and yes. recently. Like yeah. it's Santa Fe, Houston, there's and a, Texas. There's a and park. Pr- there's a press tour. Yeah, there's an actual park. <laughs> right. In, uh, the ghost. La Las Cruces, New Mexico, La Llorona Park. What? Oh, right by the Rio Grande. No way. Totally serious. Are you serious? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I watched a documentary on it. Like, there's sightings over. There's a ghost team that went out there in the middle of the night to go find her. Wow. Is that to scare people? I don't know. They named but, the park there so people will avoid the park? No, it's actually... No, it, the park's always empty. I don't know But it's why. actually more like... And honestly, if they don't say she murdered her kids in the plaque, it was more like toned down. But the park is called La Llorona Park and it's... Wow. It does reference her directly. Wow. And yeah, it's a creepy place. Great. Yeah, you <laughs> take children place. there? What the fuck? So, Leo, Leo, if, if, you, if one was there at the park and might have heard La Llorona, what would she have sounded like? Well, you're fucked. 
Remember, if you can hear her nearby, she's far away. If you hear her far away, she's really close. Oh, damn. And what does she say, Leo? Dude, she's she she walks the earth, man. Well, tell her, what does she say? How does she cry? She's got How her she arms cry? straight out. She's like wandering, and her eyes are closed. And she says, "Oh, donde están mis hijos?" Yes. Wow. Yes. <laughs> okay, I think we should put that outside of her kid's bedroom right now. <laughs> put a speaker up. <laughs> Leo, just get him yeah, up there. Leo, you just wander Leo. the halls. Yeah, put on this house. dress, Leo. Go upstairs. <laughs> <laughs> Jennifer's body dress. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, there you go. Start yeah. making some nightmares. <laughs> Say my ex-girlfriends. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow. But it was a beautiful movie, right? Right? It's it beautiful. Really yeah. beautiful. The ghosts look beautiful. La Llorona looks beautiful. LA looks cloudy and beautiful. Production design was excellent. Cinematography was excellent. Yeah, really well executed. It was really fun. Glad to find out it was filmed in real locations, a real, yeah, a real, real creepy Angeles. house. Yeah. It was pretty cool. Why, Possibly haunted. We go in there. <laughs> <laughs> we can. Yeah, we're going to add it to the LA tour we do. Ouija house, murder house. Oh, yeah. Boo Crew Tours. Boo Crew Realty. <laughs> we only Ooh. sell haunted houses. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Ta da. It's intermission time. Time for refreshment. We're happy to have you with us tonight and hope you'll come back often. Rated B for Boo Crew. If I told you about her, the princess without voice, what would I say? Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. Joining the Boo Crew in the Speakeasy studio is a multi-talented screenwriter, film producer, podcaster, blogger, and author who's just released her first book. It has become the book that everyone is talking about in the horror community and beyond. And from betwixt its adventurously researched pages has already become the catalyst that was buried behind its inception. It's the tale of monsters, both real and imagined. A love story steeped in horror history. A beautifully written unmasking of the echoes of society's wrongs. And an eloquent homage to correcting them. Thanks to our guest, the world will now know the woman named Millicent Patrick, the only woman in history to create one of Hollywood's most famous monsters. The book is The Lady from the Black Lagoon. It's available everywhere now. We are honored to welcome Mallory O'Mara. I'm yeah. so honored to be here. Thank you so much for taking your time. I know everything's crazy for you right now. Everything is very crazy, but I'm so glad that I'm here. This is definitely the coolest podcast studio I've ever been in. Wow. This is amazing. I would come just to see other people record. I'm super stoked that I get to be the guest today. Congrats on this wonderful creation and congratulations on becoming a part of the pantheon of universal monster and horror history yourself. This is a huge deal for a monster kid. It's pretty crazy. It's really taken on. I wasn't sure how the book was going to be received we had to fight really hard to get it published it was rejected by almost 50 publishers Whoa. so many people were not interested I got so much pushback from male historians when I started working on it that there were many times during the course of the writing of the book that I was like this isn't going to happen so the fact that it A happened at all but came out in such a big way 
is I'm still in shock. It hasn't really hit me yet. I keep seeing people talking about it. I'm like, but you don't know me. How do you know me? <laughs> <laughs> Millicent Patrick has been my hero for so long that the fact that so many people now know who she is, because in the monster world, we've always known about her. Right. You know, now the fact that people who aren't even into monster movies are, are all about and excited about and like are rallying for Millicent Patrick, it's just a dream come true. Well, her story has to do with a topic that is very much on the tip of everyone's tongues right now, too. So it's become universal, not just in the monster world. Um, universal. Exactly. Universal. There we go. <laughs> I started writing the book before Me Too happened and before Shape of Water happened. And the book is essentially Me Too meets Shape of Water. Right, right, right. So the, actually the publication date got bumped up by four or five months. It was supposed to come out this summer. Wow. And then we said, you know what, let's do May and then let's do April and then let's do March. We'll do the first Tuesday of March. Completely did not realize that it was the exact 65th anniversary of Creature from the Black Lagoon coming oh, out. Oh, wow. Completely oh, wow. unintentional. We had no idea. We j- I didn't realize for the longest time that the first Tuesday in March was March 5th, the day that Creature got a wide release. <laughs> Whoa. So oh, that's awesome. Yeah. It was like meant to be. Yeah. 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 It's, it's also Women's bizarre. History Month. Yeah, I say, Women's History yeah. Month. Yeah. That's actually why we chose March, but I didn't think about the Creature connection, yeah. which is just super <laughs> weird. I think that the Creature is watching out for this book. Is <laughs> it weird that when I was reading it, I kind of pictured Bud as Michael Shannon? <gasps> And no. Millicent as, as, the, as Sally, right? Like, I totally she, you. you know, she's that got that, awesome. that that symbolism of her being mute and yeah. Michael Shannon yeah. being the overboard. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yep. Except Bud Westmore has all his fingers. Right. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> well, probably not anymore. Yeah. <laughs> true. Very true. <laughs> so before we get into the book, let's just talk a little bit about you. What's your earliest memory of being exposed to the horror genre? Watching Fantasia when I was a kid. Mm. It really oh. was the first time where I thought, you know, I was watching Fantasia and it's fun. You know, you got the dancing animals, everyone's wearing tutus and, you know, it's cool. It's a cool kids movie. And then the night on Bald Mountain sequence started. I feel like my inner goth monster kid woke up in that moment because it was the very first time where I thought about art after I had looked at it because I thought about that movie that night. I couldn't stop thinking about that demon. I didn't really think about the dancing hippos afterwards, but the demon really caught my attention. It was the first time I think Anything had made me feel fear. And as a really anxious person, I loved it because it was like an anxiety vacation. So I was afraid <laughs> of something that wasn't real. Right. And I just fell in love with it. So Chernabog really was my first favorite monster. And then, of course, what you learn later. Couldn't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's destiny right there. It was so, it was maybe the most shocking thing besides finding her family was finding out that she animated Chernobyl. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Wait, so when did you find, when did you start to go down the Millicent rabbit hole? This is crazy because everything in my head, we just saw the movie Us. So oh, everything's yeah, spinning same, back same, to same, Us same. and Shape of Water. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'll be thinking about Us for the ne- rest of my life. Right, yeah. Yeah. right. So going down the Millicent rabbit hole, when did that start when you started finding out all these coincidences so to speak you were like 17 when you saw creature from the black lagoon so no one else in my family is into monsters or horror at all so as i'm sure so many people listening and people on in this room can attest to when you're the solo horror person you have to kind of give yourself a horror education and you go you're like all right cool what are all the classics so i went through all the universal monster movies and creatures the last monster in the pantheon people might argue with me you can all fight me creatures the last one (laughs) and i fell in love with it like all good horror nerds i wanted to know how how it was made how it was done how the suit came together who worked on it how they did all the underwater sequences and i went online and started looking through behind the scenes photos and trivia and stuff And there was a photo of a woman working on the monster suit. I had never seen that before. And up until that point, 
I was content to just like be a cool monster fan. I was really starting to get heavily into fandom. All my idols were Rick Baker, Tom Savini, Dick Smith, Jack Pierce. It just never occurred to me that women had a place in there. And then seeing Millicent Patrick working on the monster suit, it was like, oh, my God, I could do that. She was doing it back in the 1950s. What the heck? Like, and it really was just like getting struck by lightning for me. And that's when the eerie path of me and Millicent's life started entwining. It was very strange. Would you say you're tethered? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe Millicent Patrick is in a tunnel somewhere (laughs) with blue hair. (laughs) You also ended up going to school to become a zoologist. Yeah. Even that point, you know, seeing Millicent and I was like, okay, cool. Women have a place in Monster World, but I still didn't really get it that I could do that. And up until that point, from age seven, I was like, I'm going to be the female Steve Irwin. I wanted to be, I wanted to work with animals and I went to college for it. And at the time when I was 23 years old, I was in college working as a veterinary technician. I was at an intern at a wildlife center, but I was doing horror stuff on the side. I was, I had my own horror book club and I had a horror geocaching team, which if anybody <laughs> knows what that is, we would look up horror locations in New England, of which there are many, and For we sure. would figure them out like the horror riddles and go there. <laughs> and I started volunteering for a convention called Necronomicon, which is like a weird fiction Lovecraftian convention. And I was their volunteer coordinator. And my boss at now who's still currently my boss was one of the sponsors of the convention and he needed someone to do their social media and him and i got along immediately and so i took a leap i dropped out of college i quit my job i took a massive pay cut and started working for social media for dark dunes productions and i'm still doing it six, well not, now i'm a producer but i'm still working for him six years later and that got my foot in the door but the entire time i was like you know terrified did not go to film school had no idea how to do any of this stuff but i was like you know what Mills and Patrick figured it out. I can figure it out. I belong here too. Nice. Yeah, totally. Yes. Early on in the book, you talk about these statistics where it's like something like 96% men in the business versus. Yeah. And it's, it's like the, it, it's the it's fact only, that it's easier for more women to have been in space than have right, won an Oscar right, for right. best picture for, right. or for best director. Yeah. And then it's like, you know, looking at today, those numbers haven't really changed. No, we just went through another year of oscars where no woman was nominated for best director what do you think that is especially like in the horror genre why we're surrounded by a lot there's a lot of women who are friends of us of ours you know that love the horror stuff there's different aspects of it right but why is it that they're not in the movie biz like doing it like like you are because you can do it yourself you can I mean, do it yourself it's one of those multi-layered things just with all these very complicated issues i think one you hit the nail on the head right away is that there are so many women who are, I, I can name 30 female directors just in the horror genre off the top of my head right now. We're in Me Too and these conversations are happening, but they're not getting hired. There's so many women out there capable of every job behind a film camera, but they're not getting hired. They're not considered because, which brings me to the second thing, is that people don't think about women being monster fans. They don't think about women being horror fans. I had a great conversation with my friend Kate, who's a editor, and she said, yeah, I get considered for romantic comedies, but people don't think that I can do action. They don't think that I can do violence. They don't think I can do horror. So I have to put extra of that in my editing reel to show them because people just there's a weird unconscious bias, even from people who think they're good people who don't think that they're sexist at all. They just even now tons of male directors, they just don't think about women. So you really have to push for it. Many women are pushing for it. We're starting to see a little bit more women are making their own movies via Kickstarter. And there's some great stuff happening there. Big ships turn slowly. And until I really think we start 
forcing people to like, okay, I am working on a bunch of projects right now. And one of the things I've started doing is, okay, no, no one can have the rights to this unless they in writing say that they will have a female director, like that kind of stuff. It's just a multi-layered thing. And women have so much stuff working against them, which is crazy because I think some of the best artists we have working today are women in the horror genre. Yes. It's insane. Oh, yeah, yeah. Totally. We love Diablo Cody and Jennifer's Body. Like that movie was so good. Yeah. So, she didn't have another movie for so long. I know. Yeah. But even then, I mean, people are still talking about that movie today and still saying that movie was way ahead of its time. Yep. And that's what was crazy. You can't swing a dead cat in L.A. without finding a talented woman who likes horror. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy to me that these it's just this pattern people fall into everybody knows each other here so when people get considered for things you're like oh well, i work with this guy I work with this guy they're less apt to take a chance on a woman they've never worked with so it's just a self-looking ice cream cone where women don't get <laughs> as many jobs so they don't get considered for as many jobs someone just needs to stop and go okay, no, we need to get a woman in here. Well, I guess yeah. the question, like, how do you, it's deprogramming the systemic sexism. You get, you know, there's the story about, I can't remember his name, the guy directed Jurassic World. He directed a tiny little indie movie. Is that Sundance? Brad Bird was at Sundance. And he said, hey, white guy in a backwards hat. You remind me, when I was a young white guy with backwards hat, <laughs> you should come meet Frank Marshall. That's how they procreate. They <laughs> so then he, his next film after this tiny indie was Jurassic World. Yep. And then he got Star Wars Episode Nine. Yep. But while he was waiting to do Star Wars Episode Nine, he did a movie called Book of Henry, which was terrible, tanked. And they went, wait a minute, maybe he's not very good. And he lost Star Wars Episode Nine. But, Patty but he's still Jenkins, in that world. Who did Monster's Ball, didn't get another right. movie for, what, 12 years? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's what I mean. It's like, it really is the Captain Marvel thing. Women have to go higher, further, faster. Right. They have to be incredible to even get considered. And it's just like white guys in backwards hats, like tripping, like, oh, you want to drink a movie? <laughs> 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 and I, you see it constantly when, you know, there are lots of directors who I won't name that make movies that tank and they still get considered right. for things because yeah. they're still getting the work and they're on people's minds. What's amazing about this book is that so many people who weren't in the monster world who were talking to me about this totally didn't think about how many women are monster fans and how many women love Creature from the Black Lagoon. And then all of a sudden there was this explosion on Instagram of monster girls who were just posting pictures of it and they were super excited. And I was like, see, right. we're all here. <laughs> <laughs> We've been here forever. We yep. love this stuff. and But people don't think about it. They got Millicent Patrick Rules t-shirts oh, yeah. now. They were in contact with me and I was really, really excited. Oh, yeah. That's that. amazing. I was so stoked about it. Have you had a lot of stories of people talking to you about their experiences relating to Millicent? Through? Yeah, it's been a weirdly... I've been on tour since March 5th. I'm going to be on tour till June. And it's been a weirdly emotional experience. I've had to buy waterproof mascara oh. because at least one person cries at every single signing I do. Wow. It's been really incredible because they're just like, hey, I feel so seen. This has been... Uh, genre that I've loved for so long and there's so little representation for us even in front of the camera let alone behind the camera that all of a sudden I feel like I belong here now you know I've talked to female special effects artists and female cartoonists and artists and painters and animators and even women who are just fans of it and they're just like oh my god thank you so much. And then I get all cryy and they like we hug and it's yeah, yeah, just lots of waterproof mascara. Well, for anyone who isn't familiar with the story of what happened to Millicent Patrick back in the 50s, in a nutshell, what can you tell us about the parallels that we are drawing between now and then in the 50s of what happened to Millicent? What happened to Millicent? So she was working at Universal as their basically their first female, what we would call now a concept artist. She worked in the makeup shop and she designed both monsters, but also like beauty makeups. 
So she was doing anything from an alien to like a cool lipstick on just in just like a straight drama. And she was the, again, the first woman to ever do this. She was the first woman to ever work in a makeup shop in this kind of role. And when Creature from the Black Lagoon was getting ready to come out, Universal was trying to think of all kinds of wacky ways to promote their movie. And they thought, you know what? We have this gorgeous, articulate, electrifying woman who designed the monster. Why don't we send her on tour? Like the beauty who created the beast. But the problem with that was that Millicent's boss at the monster shop was a man named Bud Westmore, who he really, but the Westmores were famous for their beauty makeup. Bud Westmore took over from a man that I'm sure everyone in this room knows named Jack Pierce, who Mm -hmm. was really the monster king. Bud Westmore never could really live up to that. I mean, to be fair, who can? Who can can (laughs) live up to Jack Pierce? He brought Millicent on to help design these monsters to fill in that gap. Bud Westmore had a reputation as not a great guy when it came to certain things. Back then, only the heads of production got screen credit for stuff. There wasn't like a 10 minute end crawl at the end of a movie like we have now. So Bud Westmore was the only one who was getting credit for stuff. And there was no internet, there was no Twitter, there was no IMDb. So people were like, oh, well, Bud Westmore created all this stuff. And this was going to be the very first time a studio had sent out a designer on tour to promote a movie. Also the first time that people would know that somebody other than the studio or the production head did something. And he was like, no, 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 you can't do this. I don't want people to know that I wasn't the one who designed it. So he's like, all right, you can send her on the tour, but only if you A, rebrand it as the beauty who lives with the beasts. So she was like, went from being the creature's designer to being like his mom slash roommate, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Which is super strange. (laughs) And you also have to lie and say that I was the one who designed it. And she said yes and went on on the tour. She traveled. She was on the news. She was on the radio. She was on TV. She in the newspapers. But he was so jealous of all the press she was receiving. And Bud Westmore loved press. So while she was on tour, he fired her. He took her off the movie that she was working on, which is This Island Earth. And when she came back to Los Angeles, she didn't have a job and she never worked behind the scenes in Hollywood ever again. Then he just continued to tell people that he was the one who designed it. And for decades up until I wrote this book, most people thought it was credited to Bud Westmore. And that also includes the other people who worked on it. Chris Mueller, who sculpted it, Jack Kevin, who worked on it. This was just, you know, there's a team of people that were sort of shunted aside. So Melissa Patrick sort of drifted into obscurity and no one knew no one even knew if she was still alive when I started working on this book. It was really crazy. Just nuts because she's, again, she's the first woman to design a, one of Universal's classic monsters. Universal themselves should be like, hey, look, we did this thing. You know, this is amazing. And no one's known about her. Did any of that press material still exist? Of yes. Reels of her talking and everything oh, like that? In the- unfortunately, not any radio or TV spots, but I have tons of interviews and like written material. I couldn't find any radio stuff. I'm hoping that with the book out, somebody will be like, hey, I have this footage or I have this recording recording or something of her that yeah, would be there's amazing. gotta be something somewhere that's what yeah that's what i'm hoping second edition yeah <laughs> <laughs> I, I love that part of the book was it chris mueller who he said sculpted, yes yeah. who said that yes it was her who designed yeah. the- he's, he's always said that and that's the other flip part of this has been crazy is that because she was a woman for decades even now which is insane to me there were historians and people who said no she didn't do this even though there are photos of her working on it <laughs> The guy who sculpted it said, yeah, yeah, Mills and Patrick designed this. They're like, nope, nope, not listening. Nope, it was a woman. She couldn't have done that. She must have been somebody's girlfriend. 
So that also was a big problem for me unearthing her story and just her legacy. Is there are so many people who just straight up dismissed her because they didn't think that a woman could do this. I read this thing cover to cover over the past few days we were on, uh, probably in the most Millicent Patrickist way possible. We were on a Disney cruise. <gasps> so I read it in the middle of the ocean <laughs> on a Disney cruise. Oh, perfect. And all bases covered. She was involved with Disney. Yes, Millicent Patrick. We were talking a little bit before we started recording, but even if she just designed Creature, it would have been incredible, life worth talking about, story worth telling. But Millicent Patrick's first job out of art school was working at Disney back in 1939. And back then, it was all hand-drawn. The animators, the male animators, would draw these drawings. They needed someone to take the drawings and put them onto the cells, where they would actually... The cells were like these clear sheets of slippery paper that were actually the things that got put in front of the camera. And the entire department of people who put those together were women. Something called the ink and paint department, and that's what they did. Half the team would ink them on to these tiny, tiny little things, and then the other half would paint on them, and then they would get shot in sequence to become animation. So that was entirely staffed by women but because it was like a tedious job it was like considered oh it was like sewing even though it's like this incredible level of artistic craftsmanship because it's tedious they're like oh it's like a woman's thing so that's where Millicent Patrick started and then she got bumped up to be a color animator on Fantasia and after that she got bumped up even further to be an in-betweener which is like a full on animator on Dumbo, The Reluctant Dragon. So she got to work on some really amazing projects in a very short period of time. And there were where there were very few women animating. She was one of the first female animators at Disney. So at the time, it was Red Scott got the credit for yes. being one of the first female animators. She was for the Disney. first credited one. So but she saw her name on screen on Bambi. But it's funny, they didn't notice this movie come out first. Yes. Yeah, so that's the weird thing about animation is that there are so many parts of animated movies that are happening concurrently. That it's kind of hard when people ask me, was she really the first? I can't disprove or prove it because so many, it, it depends on how you define it. Millicent was definitely the first to see her stuff on screen. Retta was the first one to see her name on screen. But as to like who drew the first drawing that came on screen, it's impossible to know. So all I can say is that she was one of the first, but it was Retta Scott, Marsha James. Like there were some women working back then. And you have pictures. I mean, you talked about it, them being together. It's like yeah. pictures of them together. Hanging out. Yeah. Like it's so cool. <laughs> like you just want to hang out with them. Yeah. <laughs> so what are they talking about? Right? Like Disney was actually a cool place for women to work back then. You know, it was a place where working female artists could make a living. Disney actually also really encouraged men to leave them alone and let them do their work. It was people have their conflicted opinions about him but it was a great place for women to work in the 30s for sure talk a little bit about going out and discovering all this information without spoiling the book too much as that's a big component of the book it becomes this detective story of you trying to track down these little bits of information what you could find and it takes you to some very interesting places talk about some of the challenges in finding out all this information were there times where you're just like you know fuck this i can't find out anything dead end i'm not doing this yeah there were definitely a few moments the thing that was a big revelation for me that I found out. It took me four or five months to figure this out as Millicent Patrick went under seven different names over the course of her life. Oh, wow. wow. Which was a nightmare for a reason. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. And that's why I figured out why no one could figure out what happened to her after Universal and why no one had figured out what happened pre-Universal because they were all different names. And it was just looking through the archives at the LA Times that I found an article mentioning her under Millicent Patrick Trent. And that broke everything open for me. And that took me to her childhood at Hearst Castle because she was born Mildred Rossi. That's what she animated under Disney. 
I felt like I got a chunk of her life under each different name and I was stitching together all of these weird parts and like we I had to go to all these weird places probably the weirdest place I had to go was the Mormon temple here in Los Angeles because I didn't realize and a lot of people don't know that familyancestry.com a lot of those genealogical sites are all Mormon owned and operated because Mormons have really big families and there are historically parts of the Mormon religion where if you die as an unmarried man you can get posthumously married to an unmarried woman so if you're a dead dude, wow. they can marry you off to another dead person. So you have like an afterlife marriage. Oh, dude, there's hope what? for me. To what? Wait. So pause. Why? Because it's good. They want people to be married, I guess. So, it, so because of that, it behooves them to have as much genealogical information as possible. With all of these things combined, they really have these incredible archives. And to get access to them, you have to give them your information. So I might, when I'm dead in the afterlife, some guy might come up to me and be like, hey, Mallory, uh, we're getting married on Earth. <laughs> so, But I said, you know what? Cool. Take my afterlife. I Because I need access to these archives. And I ended up really breaking my case open. And I won't spoil it for listeners, but gives me my probably my biggest break of the entire book. But yeah, it was I had to go to all these wacky, weird places to find the breadcrumbs of her life, essentially. And that's part of the reason why I included the search in the book, because I really wanted to show people how devastating the effects of what Bud Westmore did was not only the effects it had while she was alive, but also to her legacy and how difficult it was for me to unearth. And the best way I knew how to show that was to bring readers along with the journey and sh like show them step by step how difficult it was to find all the pieces of her life where we really, you know, she should have a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Like she's a really big trailblazer in film. She was super influential, like just creature alone is one of the most influential monsters we have. And nobody knows about her, even though these pieces have been scattered all over the place for 60 something years. Well, it took someone like you, your tenacity and your, you know, drive. Insomnia. <laughs> <laughs> well, we thank you for it. <laughs> Talking about afterlife, have you had any experience with the afterlife? Seen any ghosts or believe? Sadly, no. It is one of the, my, I have been in situations where there were the potential for those things. And I'm one of those people that's like always open. I'm hoping yeah. that something like that happens. Millicent, if you want to visit me, hit me up. <laughs> <laughs> I have unfortunately never had a spooky experience. At that same yeah. time, though, was there parts along this journey where you felt maybe that you were guided by the hand of Millicent's spirit? There's got to be weird coincidences that happen yeah. throughout this. I could tell you folks, there's some few things I didn't put in the book because I didn't think people would believe me. Uh, do tell. So the whole impetus for me writing this book was I got this tattoo of her because i have lots of tattoos and i want to get a tattoo of her because she's just my hero and that tattoo led to a conversation which led to me writing the book because someone was like oh actually someone who is now my literary agent said you should write this book about this woman's story you know no one knew knew what happened to her and i didn't realize until a few months ago that i got that tattoo on her 100th birthday completely wow. unknowing oh my god i had no That's idea crazy. completely unintentionally <laughs> someone asked for a press photo of the tattoo for an interview and i was going back in my social media history looking for the photo of the tattoo artist matt buck who also did the book cover looking for not a crappy iphone photo of it but like a picture that he took with his camera and i looked and i was like oh my god november 11 2015 
that was her 100th birthday. What? <laughs> <laughs> and this was back in October when I was still putting in page proofs for the book and I thought about putting it in there. And I was like, I don't think people are going to believe me. I would say that's an experience at the paranormal right there. <laughs> and 11 uh, uh, 11. Yes. yes. Us. Oh, God. <laughs> Jordan Peele, get out of our heads. <laughs> he, lives now. he lives right in your head. <laughs> yeah. So there's been a few, it's just been weird. Her and I have a lot of things in common. And I will say that I definitely think that I'm the person to write this book, not just because I don't sleep very much, <laughs> but I think that talk. Talking to a lot of historians about it, Tom Weaver, who wrote The Creature Chronicles, who's an incredible author, wrote the book on the creature movies. He's the one who pointed me towards going to USC and looking in the Cinematic Arts Library archives where they have all the production materials from Universal movies of that period. And I realized while I was going through them that it really would take a woman to go through this stuff and see things that I think some people wouldn't see. Like, I was like, oh, my God, Millicent was the only woman who really worked behind the scenes on this movie. Like, someone else might not notice that. I was like, OK, Millicent, I get it. I'm the one to do this. I'll do my job. I got you. I got you. And even now I'm like, man, I hope she likes it. I hope she likes the book. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that whole section was like a nail biter. It's like, here you are in this room. You have six hours. I have you have to right. pee really yeah. bad. Yeah. You just got like, you can't copy, you can't photograph, you can't do nothing. It's like, fuck. Like, I would be devastated. Like, walking in, I'd be like, thank you, no thank you, I'm leaving. It's like an escape room. Yeah. Really yeah. yeah. But it's amazing you were able to absorb all that information in six hours. And write really fast. <laughs> because all you, when you're in the USC archives, it's amazing. It's because you're looking through all these production materials. I got to go through this island earth, mole people, Abbott and Costello, meet Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And you're trying to tamp down all your monster nerdness because, you know, you don't have that much time <laughs> to go through all of this stuff because there's very limited hours and they were closing for the summer session. So it was either get it now or I would have to wait another six months to get in there. And you're just going through all this minutia and you're trying not to nerd out and you're trying not to only look for the relevant stuff. And you're only allowed to write with their pencils on their index cards. You can't take photos. You can't have your iPhone. You can't even have a notebook. It has to be on these note cards. And if you want a photocopy, you have to submit it to their board for approval. It really is crazy. So I was just like, you could hear my brain whirring, just trying to like make find everything that I could. But in there, you know, were postcards that she had handwritten, wow. promo material. There were so many cool things in there, photographs of her, some of which they wouldn't give me rights to use or, and to copy, but some of which they did. So it was really like monster nerd heaven in there. Was that your favorite archive? Definitely, for sure. It was less nail biting than the Mormons. <laughs> <laughs> Is that where you found out that she did the Metaluna mutant? Or did you know that before? I sort of knew that before. And it was actually the, the Metaluna thing. I, I had to go sort of reverse engineer. That's like a commonly held thing on the internet, but I couldn't find proof of it. Yeah. And it was in the archives for it came from outer space when I figured out that they took some of her designs from it came from outer space because she designed that alien and saved them and later used them on this island earth it came from outer space which was universal's first science fiction movie ray bradbury god bless him he's one of my favorite authors but he wrote the original script treatment for it came from outer space and his description of the monster was like it had the word nebulous in it like it was the most like you could never figure it out it was like a paragraph long it didn't make any sense millicent patrick did tons of designs trying to figure out something that really hit the nail on the head so there were all these leftover designs so they just went in a drawer 
for later use. And that one of them they pulled out and used as the basis for the Metaluna mutant. <laughs> and she's, wow. she also designed those costumes that they wear because she also did fashion stuff. It was such a tragedy on this island earth because she was yanked off that movie. That was an even harder one to prove. So but I had to kind of like go in the back door and like go years before and other things that they were working on and figure out that's where it all started. Then when I was like, OK, now I get it because I don't want to put anything in the book that I couldn't verify because I knew this book was going to be held to the grindstone for people who didn't believe that she did stuff. So I only put stuff in there that was really ironclad. The ties to Hearst Castle, but I think blew all of our minds. Yes. Yes. Oh my God. That's so insane. Cool. So yeah. Were you like, oh, like what the hell? Really? Yeah, like- it was really nuts. <laughs> <laughs> so Millicent Patrick's father was a man named Camille Rossi, and he was a superintendent at Hearst Castle for 10 years. And so that's really where she grew up. And it became this really big influential force on her life. And I went there the first time and I went there twice for research and I couldn't believe like this is where she grew up. Like where else could she go besides Hollywood? <laughs> yeah. honest, you know? What else could hold a candle to Hearst Castle? So she was hanging out with William Randolph Hearst. That's what she named herself Millicent Patrick after Millicent Hearst, which was William Randolph Hearst's wife. <laughs> it's crazy. It's so strange, especially since later the original idea for Creature from the Black Lagoon came at a Orson Welles Citizen Kane right. dinner. Yes. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> For listeners who don't know, Citizen Kane was based off of William Randolph Hearst. They have a very weird reach over the life of Millicent Patrick. Again, like, I could not make some of this stuff up. Her life was so cinematic from go. It was incredible. And that's like, I was like, oh my God, this book is going to be <laughs> At what point in your research did you discover the Hearst Castle and that Julia w- Morgan as well. Oh, yeah. Well, it was actually pretty early on. So I found out about Hearst Castle and the Trent last name at the same time when I moved to L.A. So I started working on the book in December 2015. I was still living in Brooklyn and I ended up moving to Los Angeles because I had already booked a ticket here for research because I knew that I had to come here and actually talk to people. And I went through a breakup and I was like, you know what? I already have a plane ticket to L.A. I might as well just never come back. <laughs> so I did. And I was staying with a friend and a friend of mine, weirdly enough, her father was the warden of the San Bernardino prison. They had were once a year invited to Hearst Castle to like swim in the pool and stuff. Yeah. She knew all about the Hearst Castle history. And she was the one who's like, you should start looking through newspaper archives. Let's go to the L.A. Times first. We found an L.A. Times article from 1985 with Millicent Patrick Trent. Because right. Millicent at that time in her life in 1985 was trying to learn more about her father's role there. And that's what the article was about. And my friend Belinda was like, oh, my God, I've been there because I was there when I was a kid. You should go there and see if you can find out more. So I booked a trip there. And it's such a huge estate. You can't go there and just get a tour. I went there twice and I still haven't seen everything. It's such a massive, yeah, massive it's like estate. 10 tours or something, right? Yeah, it's really crazy. And when I went there, they had never heard of her. They had never heard of her father. It was one tour guide at the end of my first tour that had heard of him and he went to go talk to another librarian. And then during the course of my second tour, that librarian like came out of a side passage and was like, hey, are you Mallory O'Mara? We know about Camille Rossi. We know about Millicent Patrick Trent, too. She left a recording here in 1985 talking about her childhood here. (laughs) 
And I was just like, what? Oh, my God. Are you kidding me? And then they invited me back to listen to it. Did you go back to the passage? No, unfortunately. Uh, I never had to see what was behind that door. So that gave me her second name, and that unraveled all the Hearst history for me. And that led to some of the Disney stuff and her going to art school at Chouinard. So it's like each breadcrumb left a tiny crumb of another breadcrumb. (laughs) But just all of that took six months to go through. And it was really a struggle. And, you know, I hadn't sold the book yet. Blew through my entire savings account to get all of this stuff so by the time i got to the disney stuff i was really struggling (laughs) 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 trying to figure out what happened to her the whole first chunk of the book is really about her growing up there because it influenced her life so much because that's what she wanted because when she grew up at hearst castle it's not like she was one of the hearst it was her father working there so she was one of the staff so she was constantly reminded like yeah you can hang out here but this isn't where you live like this isn't your house so she spent her entire life wanting to get that for herself And she ended up sort of doing it, but it really influenced like her path into Hollywood. It's such a crazy, amazing Amazing. story. And it turns out Lydia Hurst is a massive monster fan. It's true. It's a huge horror fan. She reaches out. Have you crossed paths with her? No, No, I really hope she reaches out because that would be, it would be so cool for her, you know? Yeah, it's so much history. Uncovering this other history of of Hurst. Because one thing I love about the book so much is that being, as I was telling you before, it's such a nerd History nerd, I'm an archivist, a documentary filmmaker. I love LA history. I love Hollywood history. Like, I feel like you wrote this for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because Do it, you, Austin? It's, it's so <laughs> much of it because what it is, it's these little biographies along the way that yeah. create a collage of context for this amazing woman's story that's Thank just you. unknown and like I, it's unbelievable that all these things fold together it makes such a great story yeah there were so many color it feels like Melissa Patrick is like the Forrest Gump of the month <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> you know, she that's exactly crossing true paths with right. so many interesting personalities and so many people that uh, I've gotten a lot of people who ask me you know you know do I have to see Creature from the Black Lagoon to read this book do I have to be into monster stuff I'm like no you really don't it's just it's a big part of her life but it's just one it's only yeah. two chapters it's really just one aspect of her life and you can't believe that this one person went through all of this and met all of these people you know julia morgan the hearse all the people that she met just at hearse castle like in the 10 years is a long time can you imagine being a little kid and like seeing charlie chaplin like hey yeah her formative years hanging out at at hearse castle i've been obsessed with hearse castle since i was a little kid that in itself there's so many books written on hearse castle it's a really fascinating story they built it i think it was almost 30 years and Mm. it never was finished Mm -hmm. it really still like you go there and you see the unfinished parts of it and it's beautiful and hearst created this summer home but because it's in the middle of nowhere he basically had to build an entire village to support it so it wasn't just like a house it was like he had his own pet village right people working like stables and and village of pets Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> he had a zoo there. Millicent Patrick's father like wrestled with the jaguars and the lions. I holding two lion cubs. It's just so bombastically insane that again, like I couldn't make this stuff up. Like this is our life. Your style of writing is really captivating and not quite what I'm used to, but it's perfect for my brain because I, I'm, I'm the tip. Like I, you could probably count all the books I've read cover to cover on two hands. The reason is because I'll be looking at a page and I daydream a lot. I drift off. But what I love that you do in this book and it pulled me through right to the end. You repeat yourself in terms of. Hey, dummy, remember, <laughs> she's grown up, all right, reset, she's grown up in the shadow of the Hearst Castle, remember, like, you'll come back to that, and then reset and bring you back into the story. That was really intentional. I read a lot of biographies in preparation for writing this, and I realized, I listened to this 
amazing 18 and a half hour long audiobook of Shirley Jackson. And at oh, the end of it, wow. I was like, this is fantastic. And I only loved it because I love Shirley Jackson. Like, you know, the kind of socks that Shirley Jackson likes to wear. And I realized I couldn't do that with this book because no one knows who the Millicent Patrick is. I needed to give people a reason to care about her. I couldn't just slap down this 800 page tome of like all the you know minutia of her life. I really wanted people to feel like they had a way in that was really accessible and also, I needed to give people context for this. It's not fun to talk about sexism, so I wanted to make jokes. It's one of those things that if you don't laugh, you're going to cry. Right. And I just wanted people to really feel like they had a way into this, and anyone could read it. So I just had to put in my own voice. And I'm sarcastic. I like to make bad jokes. I felt like it just invited people in easier instead of being like, and this is a story of Mill. <laughs> <laughs> I just didn't want it to be like that. I wanted everyone to feel like they could read this book. I also love the footnotes. Yes. Yes. Made so, it so awesome. Engaging and so fun. And it had a very, I don't know if this is maybe going too far or how this can make you feel, but on that David Foster Wallace level. Oh my God. Because <laughs> Thank I, you. I love... Like his use of footnotes as storytelling, he evolved writing in that way that it gives you a whole other level of experience and, and engagement. I've never seen anyone else do it like that. Oh, and God. I always thought Thank it was you. such a clever thing for for someone to do. And why don't more people do this? I don't know. And it's so fun. You know, you bury a lot of jokes in it, but it's also informative. It's just oh, very I, engaging. I really enjoyed it. Again, I really wanted this to be a mo uh, book that you don't have to be a filmmaker. You don't have to be a film nerd. You don't have to be a horror nerd. So I wanted to include like little asides. I wanted to be like you were telling a story at a party. You're telling a story about someone that that person doesn't know. And you have to keep giving them like little tiny bits of backstory so they know what you're talking about. So I wanted people to really feel like I could use film terms, you know, like treatment or something, but then be like, oh, hey, this is what this means. Just so you right. like, I wanted everyone to really feel included. And also that's just how I talk. <laughs> I like making bad jokes. I needed to lighten it up for me. It's not a nice story in a lot of ways. Like what happened to Melissa Patrick is a, a huge bummer. It's yeah. super sad. Yeah. So much of this stuff is allowed to continue because it exists in a vacuum. And People give passes to this stuff like, oh, well, that's how things were back then. That's how people were people let things slide and they don't look at it in context but you know what everyone knew what westmore was doing back then was shitty right. they knew it was shitty they weren't like well it's 1954 everything's fine so i really wanted to contextualize things and be like yeah hey this thing that this is happening right here this is dumb let's all just agree that this is dumb and not give him a pass so all, i took all those things and i just i love footnotes i think they're fun and if people don't want to read them, they could skip past right. them. So I just thought that it would work out. And my editor, Peter Joseph at Hanover Square Press, who is amazing. Also, have you read Mary Roach? Anyone here? She's no, this nonfiction yeah. writer that also includes similar footnotes. And when we were in our first phone conversation, me and Peter, we both professed a love of Mary Roach. And he, there were footnotes in my proposal for the book. And he was like, yeah, I am in for these. So I was like, cool, dude, we are going to be able to work together. <laughs> we are be, we're in business. My favorite is when you like at some point you just refuse to keep saying Frankenstein's monster. I and know. You just call yeah. it Frankenstein. That was actually really funny. That's one of my favorite ones too. Because you say because logically they'd have the same last name anyway. Yes, right. they yeah. They're both Frankenstein. Have you thought someone pointed this out to me? I thought it was really interesting about Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is the misogyny built into it. Oh yeah. That it's a man trying to 
create life on his own without the use of a woman. Yeah. I that mean, blew my mind. It's always so funny to me, this idea that women can't do science fiction horror stuff. I'm like, motherfucker, we invented the <laughs> oh, genre. <shit>. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you That's go. really funny. We literally, Larry Shelley literally wrote the first science fiction yep. story. Like, you're really going to tell me women don't belong in this world? Come on. That's why your book is so awesome, is that oh. you're representing, you're putting her oh, face to you. someone who did it. And so I just think it's so important. Yeah. Thank you so much. And it's like, Again, we're living in this great age where all these great new movies are coming out and people want to see them. People want to see Jordan Peele's new movie. They want to see Karen Kusama's new movie. There's this like tiny vocal minority of garbage people that are like, no, we only want stuff from the same old people. And everyone else is like, no, no. There's room for everyone here. We'll we'll go see these movies. I just someone needs to say that and like really like you said put a face to it. Like no, we're all here too. Yeah. We and other people want to read it and watch it. We're here. We're cool with this. It's fine. Yeah, there's two other people that are gonna really love your book. One is Guillermo del Toro. He's got a copy. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> and number two, because you love metal, John Five. Oh, well, Kirk Hammett is reading the book. Oh, nice. I tweeted about the book, and I think I peed my pants. <laughs> I'm a huge Metallica fan, and when I found out he was excited about the book, I just lost my mind. I really, really did. Because, I mean, it's exciting. Again, I was very nervous about this book because it's my debut book, but I felt so much pressure because I'm carrying Millicent's banner. You know, it's really not about me. It's about her. So all of a sudden, seeing Guillermo del Toro tweet about her, Kirk Hammett put a picture of her on his Instagram. I'm like, hell yes like people are rallying behind this woman big people in big places who like have a lot of reach and a lot of audience like fuck yeah this is what i've wanted for so long it's so exciting to see well it takes me back to the video you posted on social media where you got the box of books and you open it for the first time and (laughs) you're crying and you say finally everybody's gonna know who she is and then that's happening which is amazing she should have this huge following like she was this super important woman she was doing this stuff back in the 50s back in the 30s she worked on one of the most famous animated monsters of all time young girls and everybody you know like young kids should be like oh yeah women make monster stuff there was Millicent Patrick, horror filmmakers, like male directors should be like, oh, yeah, women do this stuff. Millicent Patrick's been doing it since the 1950s. Like she should just be there. It's this really big hole, I think, in, in horror history. It's just insane to me that in 2019, this is the first time really. I mean, again, we I think we talked a little bit about this before. Monster people have known about her for a really long time, but I think there would be more monster girls if there was that kind of representation going back to music just for a quick sec when we were talking about kirk hammond and john five and everybody being a music fan was there a soundtrack to the book to creating it it's on my spotify yeah oh, yeah nice. I, I will, I'll, I'll email it to you and i have it's publicly available if any fans want to listen to it i have a whole soundtrack that is for me the soundtrack to the book it's got some really eclectic stuff on yeah well, can you <laughs> share some artists or, or songs that you were there's a night on bald mountain but it starts off with the shape of water theme then it goes into Night on Bald Mountain. There's some classical pieces on there. And then there's some heavier stuff, like during the sad part of her life is uh, She's Gone Away by Nine Inch Nails. During the some of the 50s happy stuff, there's In Dreams by Roy Orbison and the Platters songs. And then at, towards the end, it's, you know, We Don't Need Another Hero by Tina Turner. <laughs> <laughs> stuff like that. So I really organize the playlist so it goes through like each chapter of the book. Can you write while listening to music? Do you yes. do that? Yes. So some of these songs you were actually yes. listening to while Absolutely. writing. Absolutely. I wrote wow. like... I really wanted to get in that headspace, you know, so I listened to a lot of the 
Fantasia soundtrack or the Fantasia score, I should say, while I was writing the Disney parts and some of the angry parts. I was listening to some heavier things <laughs> and my partner, Alan, can always be like, oh, she's writing something mad. <laughs> she's listening to Cannibal Corpse down there. <laughs> something really bad's happening. Music helps so much of us get through so many things and really flavors our lives. So I wanted to have that in the book. And I also wanted readers to be able to experience that too. So as soon as I was done with the book, I was like, okay, here, it's out here. So I, yeah, I'll send it to you. It's called the, for me, it's like the playlist from the Black Lagoon. That's great. <laughs> nice. I love it. Going forward, are you planning on spearheading, uh, let's say, like a campaign or something towards Disney and or Universal to bring awareness as to her contributions? I did a talk at Disney, which was really fantastic. And I'm definitely going to... They invited me to do more talks, so there'll be more awareness there. There have been some developments to do other things to make Millicent more well-known. I can't say anything about them on mic, but hopefully this is not the last Millicent Patrick thing you're going to see. That's all I can say. All right. Exciting. One statement I need to make to you is Mallory, you got to make the movie. <laughs> Lips are sealed. Can't say anything. Powerful silence right there. Can't say anything. Have um, you ever tried to track down anything from the movie? Any props uh, or like man, any that, pieces of the costume? I know like things. Creature stuff is like the white whale of monster collectors. You know, there are people who have been looking for. For me, the biggest thing would be her original drawings. No one knows where those are. There's one collector, a man named John in Arizona who has some stuff one of her original paintings I have a ton of her stuff but none of there's no creature stuff in it there are people more tenacious than I that are on the lookout for those original creature things and whoever has them is not giving them up or they're like in some unsuspecting person's basement probably Kirk right. Hammett <laughs> <laughs> doesn't Bob Baker have uh, is it Bob Baker he's got the head no oh. that was uh, uh, Bob, Bob Burns Bob Burns, Burns. not yes. Bob Baker <laughs> Bob Baker's very <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm sure he's hiding as a puppet Bob. somewhere <laughs> <laughs> that would be cool a Bob Baker creature puppet though that would be that would be so really cool I wonder cool. if they had, there's hundreds of them in their archive that would be so cool <laughs> you never know Speaking of, I mean, this would go on a whole other trajectory here, but uh, with your production company, Yama Song, that new film, they just had a screening a couple days ago. Yes. Oh, here, yeah. and, that, and that's some hardcore, beautiful puppetry no in kidding. there. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. It, it was amazing. really crazy. We've been working on Yama Song for a long time. So Yama Song is sort of like Princess Mononoke meets Dark Crystal. Oh, wow. And we have a great cast. We have Whoopi Goldberg, Nathan Fillion, George Takei. There's some amazing people on it. And I've been working on it for a long time. And... We found out that it was going to come out in theaters 24 hours before my book launch. <laughs> so it started playing in theaters March 4th. My book came out March 5th, so I haven't been able to do press for it. The night it screened in downtown Los Angeles, I was doing a creature screening the same time oh, no. in Hollywood. So unfortunately, I haven't been as present for the promotion for it. But there are in screenings around the country in indie theaters right now. It's going to be out on VOD next month in April. Very excited about it. It's weird because I had to like downshift my excitement for it because I'm the producer on it the director can promote Yamasong nobody else unfortunately can promote my book so people keep asking me about Yamasong and I'm like oh yeah oh my god <laughs> it's really it's very strange we should also highlight I want to promote your incredible podcast that you do with uh, Bria Grant yes yeah the you. reading glasses it's yeah, uh, it's yes. unbelievable yeah. and of course Bria's got a horror history as well being in the Rob Zombie Halloween franchise and a bunch of other stuff it's very weird for the two of us so we started so reading glasses for listeners is it's a book podcast where we don't talk about books. We talk about reading because we wanted a book podcast where you don't have to have read anything to listen to it. We talk more about like, 
okay, how do you get a book back from someone who's borrowed it? What's a great library app to use? What's the best <laughs> brush to use to get dust? Like, how do you get stickers off the back of books? What's the best way to do it? So we really <laughs> want to talk about reading because I, I love to read and I listen to a lot of book podcasts and I'm like, oh no, they're reviewing this book. I didn't read it. I'm going to skip it. And we also wanted to, you know, comic book readers can listen. And if you're an e-reader or a print person or an audiobook person, like no matter what you read or how you read it, you can listen to reading glasses and you won't feel left out. And it's funny because the podcast has taken off and so many people are like, oh, you guys are filmmakers or they, oh, they'll see Bria in things and be like, oh, my God, this Bria Grant for reading glasses. And we're like, yeah, that's like our whole deal. Like, that's our day job. Like, that's what we do for a living. <laughs> it's so it's weird that people know us only through reading glasses and not because horror is so much of both of our lives that people sort of if they come in through the podcast side, they have no idea. And it's really strange. As a monster fan, what is, I guess, you know, some of your favorite horror monster movies i know shape of water is a big one and creature from the black lagoon but i don't know if there is possibly any others i i'm a big nightbreed fan oh nightbreed is so good <laughs> see i have two horror movie pantheons i have my horror movies and then werewolf movies i oh. am a werewolf fanatic i always feel ashamed What's your favorite werewolf movie oh, all right i have i have fought like a handful of <laughs> really hard for me to decide because everyone's always like oh the creature must be your favorite universal movie and i like grab at my collar and go like Ugh. it's actually the wolfman i'm a big wolfman fan love american werewolf in london mm, that's love a great ginger one. Yeah. snaps love all the hammer movies so i love curse of the werewolf i also love an indie danish movie that came out in 2014 called when animals dream it's a female werewolf movie that's mm. a Amazing. So that's sort of my like mini pantheon. Also, big dog soldiers fan. I guess if I had to say my favorite werewolf had to be original Lon Chaney Jr. That was great. Because I love American Werewolf in London, but it is like a hellhound and I love a bipedal werewolf. So that is my wow, specific. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Oh, <laughs> huge werewolf nerd. I have four werewolf tattoos and it's my dream. My hope is someday we get to see a female designed female werewolf because that's uh, all I want. It's all I want. All <laughs> call me. I, I thought you were going to say your dream is to become. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. I was waiting for that too. <laughs> that I was waiting for that too. That would be great if it could I be can make fe that happen. female designed <laughs> werewolf who can then bite me. That's all I want. Perfect. I can ha happily ever after for me for sure. <laughs> well, you've got a ton of appearances coming Coming up and everyone can see uh, those on your website, yes. ValerieOmera.com. Well, thank you so much again for taking the time out of your insane schedule and for sharing this book and your knowledge with us. And we're so excited to have you here. And everybody, go get the book, Lady from the Black Lagoon. It's available everywhere now. And the audiobook version. Which I narrate. How so cool good. is that? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, this has been the best podcast I've ever done. This has been wow. amazing. <laughs> well, we'll end there. <laughs> Thank you so much, Valerie. It's so awesome. <laughs> they dared to study him, to probe him, to tempt him with the lure of a woman's beauty, thinking that mere chains could hold in check the primeval forces that surged and roiled within this strange being from the dawn of time. That was the Boo Crew Podcast, episode 44. Special thanks to Mallory O'Mara. Follow her at Mallory O'Mara. That's O-M-E-A-R-A on Twitter and Instagram. Listen to her on the Reading Glasses podcast and get the Lady from the Black Lagoon, Hollywood Monsters, and the Lost Legacy of Millicent Patrick everywhere now. Till next time, the Boo Crew says, see you on the other side. Thanks for listening to another episode of 
welcome the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at TalesFromTheBoo. The Boo Crew is Tim Timebomb, Leone D'Antonio, Lauren and Trevor Shand, Austin Wilkin, and Rachel Tahada. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shand. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation. Bye.